This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Colbert Report, Ring of Fire, Jim Hightower, NPR, The Young Turks, The Green News Report from bradblog.com, The New Yorker podcast, Tom Hartman, and Radio Eco Shock, with a bonus clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from Tom Hartman. Illinois, Texas, and Pennsylvania are filing lawsuits about the noise caused by wind turbines. I'm surprised. Based on GE's commercials, I thought wind turbines emitted only ethereal New Age music. (laughs) I wouldn't mind that. It would be like rooming with Enya. But evidently, that is not what the neighbors hear. I never thought they would be this loud, but um, every day when you walk out and it is noisy, it's a constant reminder that they're here forever. Cleaning the environment shouldn't mean noise pollution. Luckily, we can save the planet from unpleasant sound by using new quiet coal technologies (laughs) and breakthroughs in silent oil. And if we just do that much, eventually the ice caps will melt, the seas will rise, and our coastal cities will be underwater where it's nice and quiet. Let's talk about, you know, something I'm deeply interested in, which is uh, the green investment. This is another accomplishment. One of our companies, one of the companies I've been involved with, BrightSource, just on last Wednesday, broke ground on a 2.7 gigawatt power plant. It's going to be one of the largest power plants ever built of any kind. But it's a solar thermal plant that's in the Mojave Desert. And it will... It's two and a half times the size of a typical nuclear power plant, and it's being constructed over a two-year period. It takes 20 or 30 years to build a nuke plant. It takes uh, 10 years to build a coal plant. It's being constructed for about $3 billion a gigawatt. A coal plant costs the same thing, but once you build this plant, it's free energy forever because the photons are hitting the Earth every day for free. All you've got to do is pick them up and put them in the lines. And... Once you build that $3 billion coal plant, now you got to go cut down the Appalachians, ship them across the country in rail yard, burn the coal, poison every fish in our country with mercury, and the real, and then kill tens of thousands of Americans every year with ozone and particulates. The real costs begin after you build the plant. Obama was not able to get cap and trade through, but he is embarking on an Apollo program to transform our country into a new energy economy. That power plant that we're building now in the Mojave Desert would never have gotten started without $1.3 billion loan from the Department of Energy. 
So we went from an energy policy in this country that was giving $100,000 tax breaks to Hummers and going to war to protect oil lines in the Mideast that are costing us three-quarters of a trillion a year in exports to a, an administration that is genuinely and effectively beginning the transfer of our country to a, to a new energy economy. This is, I think, the great untold story of this administration. Van Jones said to me that if everyone on, on Earth talks about Obama as the first black president, but if you'd come down from Mars and sort of looked at his record compared to every other president, you'd call him the first green president because that's where the where the policy difference is. And, and again, it, it's taking public funds from the stimulus program and leveraging them using matching grants and other things that require you know, private companies like BrightSource to bring and, and mobilize private capital for what they're doing. And if you add up all that investment, it's, it's indeed greater than the, the Apollo program that, that Greens have been clamoring for for decades. And as you point out, every dollar that the federal government has invested has brought in not only has brought in huge private investment and not only that but private enterprise jobs much more the green energy jobs they're now creating are more jobs than the entire fortune 500 put together it's a remarkable transition and it's overdue and what's what's remarkable about it too is that the the investments that we're making are bringing the costs of carbon if not free at least greatly reduced carbon energy down to the level where it's cost competitive in its own right so that you don't need it would be great to get a cap and trade program that prices the externalities of coal and the rest of it properly but if you can make the investments that actually create economies of scale that bring clean energy on its own even with before you price in the externalities uh, into a cost competitive situation with dirty fuels, then you've solved a great part of the problem. And it's also interesting because they've, they've also been ratcheting up enforcement of clean air laws and the rest of it. So there's a, a single rule that they've proposed that is going to force big coal polluters to clean up emissions that otherwise go downwind and into other states. And I think this is one, one regulation that has the potential to save 30,000 American lives and something like a quarter of a trillion dollars a year in lost productivity if it's implemented the way, you know, for, for a marginal cost of something like $3 billion to the coal industry. I mean, well, if you look, you look at a single regulation like that and you understand the, the story of this administration, this administration isn't perfect. There's a lot of warts. I mean, I don't, I don't, don't mean to paper those over, but you miss the forest for the trees if you, if you focus on what didn't make it into health care or the failure to close Guantanamo. But you, know, you just look at the single regulation that could save 30,000 lives a year and a quarter of a trillion dollars in lost productivity, and that, that's what this presidency has been about. The regulations controlling ozone in particulates and now the, the latest science from the Harvard School of Public Health shows that we lose 60,000 Americans dead every year from ozone in particulates, a million lost work days, a million asthma attacks every year. And they were supposed to have been controlled a long time ago, 20 years ago. The Bush administration basically wrote them a free ticket so they they didn't have to do that. And it's it's really, it's a, it's a huge subsidy. The National Research Council, which is a research arm of the federal government, just produced a, re, produced a report, and just to support what you said, saying the cost, just the health care costs from, of ozone in particular, well, that one category of pollutants from coal-burning power plants is $156 billion a year. You could basically pay for the insurance of every uninsured American 10 times over just by eliminating ozone and particulates. And, you know, if you want to know how Barack's 
health care program is going to be paid for it. That's how to do it. Now, the other side of that is I was at a factory last week that produces turbines for wind farms, and they are now, because of new technologies that have emerged over the past five years, they can now produce wind at about 11 cents a kilowatt hour. That's delivered, the turbine's delivered, and you know all the financing costs loaded in, 11 cents a kilowatt hour. Well, that's at parity with coal. So at it with coal currently, and that's coal without having to pay for the ozone and particulates. So green energy is at parity. The Barack Obama recognizes that you know the, the, we need to be in the lead rather than letting the Chinese or somebody else lead the way. And despite all of this Republican resistance, he is forcing our country into that direction. Talk about the Republican exist resistance, because that really, and you have a great quote from Sean Wellens in your article. Sean Wellens is a very sober historian from Princeton, and, you know, he just says that these are the these are the craziest people that we've ever had on Capitol Hill. They're just, and they don't care about our country. Patriotism means nothing other than, you know, kind of a rhetoric for them for re recruiting ground troops and for selling their programs to the American people. But it's, you know, they're... From day one, they were saying, we want this this president to fail. That's what we want. John Boehner has said it. Rush Limbaugh declared it, and everybody was shocked. And then all the Republicans said, oh, yeah, that's the strategy. And, the, and they're doubling down on it. I mean, Mitch McConnell's only legislative goal, it seems, is to keep Obama from being reelected. So this is, this is I mean, as, as once put it to me, there's, there's no adult supervision in, in Congress anymore. There used to be a, a, you know, a Republican establishment that helped keep the, the backbenchers in line and, and helped sort of keep the national interest moving forward. And that, that is just gone now. last, a small spark of sanity from Washington. After making a full scientific assessment of environmental impacts, the EPA has revoked the permit for the largest mountaintop removal project ever to assault the natural resources and the people of Appalachia. Unfortunately, this spark of sanity set off an explosion of babbling madness by the coal mining giants. Arch Cole, the holder of the permit, said it was shocked and dismayed that EPA would dare revoke it, shrieking that this was, quote, an onslaught by an overreaching agency that will have a chilling effect on future U.S. investments. Then came West Virginia's corporate-hugging senator, Joe Manchin III. It goes without saying, he began, before proceeding to say what did not need saying. Parroting Arch Cole's script, Joe called the revocation, quote, a shocking display of overreach that will have a chilling effect on investments. Joe was followed by a cabal of non-mining corporate interests, which did a frantic Chicken Little imitation. Pulling this one permit, they screeched, will be staggering to the whole U.S. economy. 
Get a grip, people. This permit should never have been issued in the first place. It was carelessly handed out by the Bush regime, which was infested with industry operatives. Now, EPA has merely done the responsible environmental assessment that the Bushites refused to do. Talk about an onslaught that would be shocking, chilling, and staggering. Bush's permit would have let Arch Cove decapitate all the mountains in a 2,300-acre stretch of Appalachia, shove the toxic rubble and waste into the valleys, bury the streams, kill the wildlife, and pollute the water supply of people downstream. This is Jim Hightower saying, mountaintop removal is a brutal, totally destructive abomination done solely to make quick profits for a handful of coal executives and rich absentee investors. It's about time they were told no. So let's presuppose for a moment that you actually enjoyed this show. Now, if that's true, please consider supporting it with a $5 monthly membership. I actually quit my job as a climate activist to pursue this show full-time because this is where I felt like my talents could best be put to use and I could have the biggest impact on the world. But I really need your support to keep going. I produce 10 shows a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule posting shows at least every third day. So if all that is worth 5 bucks a month or as little as $55, a year, a little discount for you, please consider signing up for a membership at bestoftheleft.com. Members even receive bonus audio and video content on top of the rest that doesn't make it into the final cut of the show. So please, again, check out the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. Rivers till I reach you. The Labor Department did something today it has never done before. It went to federal court to shut down a coal mine that's considered too dangerous to operate. NPR News has learned that the targeted mine, Freedom Mine in Kentucky, is owned by Massey Energy. That's the same company that owns the Upper Big Branch Mine in West Virginia, where 29 mine workers died in April in a huge explosion. NPR's Howard Burkus has the latest in an ongoing NPR News investigation. Four months ago, federal coal mine safety chief Kevin Strickland wrote in an internal email, we need to use this mine as a test case. Strickland was referring to Massey Energy's Freedom Mine No. 1 in Pike County, Kentucky. He and other federal regulators were under pressure to get tough with habitual violators of mine safety laws. Here's President Obama in the White House Rose Garden in April. We need to take a hard look at our own practices and our own procedures to ensure that we're pursuing mine safety as relentlessly as we responsibly can. A month later, Assistant Labor Secretary Joe Maine promised Congress he would go to court. To go after and shut down mines that have records like Upper Big Branch. Which is something federal mine safety regulators had never done, despite having that authority for 33 years. Today, they finally did it, seeking a preliminary injunction of forced shutdown and federal court supervision for Massey's Freedom Mine. In a statement, Massey says it does not believe the mine is unsafe, just big and old and hard to adapt to newer safety standards. It said it might close the mine until it can meet those standards and try to move the miners elsewhere. But if the government gets the court order at once, Massey would have to pay the miners during a shutdown. Freedom and other mines need this legal tool imposed, says Tony Opegard. And it's long past time that that section of the law be used. Opegard is a former state and federal mine safety official who now represents miners suing mining companies. This is a very troubled mine, 
barely a third of the way into the year, they already had 400 and some violations, uh, numerous unwarrantable failures that you knew you had a violation and you didn't fix it, or you should have known about this violation because it was open and obvious and you didn't fix it. Freedom Now has more than 50 unwarrantable failures this year, according to federal records. It now has 700 safety violations, with more than 200 considered serious and substantial. It repeatedly fails to clean up or neutralize coal dust, which is both flammable and explosive. Inspectors found loose coal as much as four feet deep in the mine, according to court documents, and coal dust spread as much as two miles underground. And that's in a mine with electrical problems and other possible sources of ignition, according to inspection records, which also say the mine has more than a million cubic feet of potentially explosive methane gas seeping in every day. It's a volatile and persistent pattern that troubles Ed Clare, a former chief lawyer for the Labor Department's Mine Safety Agency. What I think has happened over many, many years is that There's a growing frustration with the process where the mine operators continue to violate the same standards, and there is no permanent fix to serious problems. That alleged behavior at the Freedom Mine puts the lives of its 130 miners at risk, according to James Pointer, a federal mine safety official in Kentucky. He writes in a court document that the mine has a high risk level for a fatal accident on any given day. Two miners, he notes, would have been killed by falling rock in one of six such incidents since August if a power outage hadn't kept them away. Rock falls are frequent at the mine according to state and federal records, and inspectors blame mine managers for failing to protect miners. And those are the exact types of mines I would imagine the drafters of the Mine Act had envisioned when they put in this very serious provision that would allow the agency to go to court. Celeste Monforton is a former federal mine safety official and is part of an independent team investigating the Upper Big Branch disaster. She reviewed Freedom's record at NPR's request. Despite the agency's efforts to send a message to the mine that they are violating the law, in their subsequent inspections they even had more citations and orders than in the previous inspection period. And that was after mine managers promised to do better as recently as July, according to court documents. But as James Pointer writes, inspectors continue to find serious life-threatening conditions. Pointer cites ventilation as another major problem. Proper ventilation sweeps away explosive and toxic gases. But inspectors found dead or little airflow at times and air flowing in the wrong direction. In one incident in February, they measured methane gas at such highly explosive levels they ordered everybody out. The Labor Department wants the mine shut down until safety problems are fixed and Massey Energy demonstrates it can operate the mine safely. Patricia Smith is the agency's solicitor. We've cited them over 1,900 times. We've closed down the mine and withdrawn miners 81 times and still the safety violations continue on. There's a real concern from the MSHA personnel who have been on the ground and been in the mine that the next safety violation could lead to a tragedy. Smith says she's preparing injunctions against other mines. Seeking an injunction and shutdown is tough, but going to a judge is risky. It makes safety enforcement a court's responsibility, and a judge may have this question. If this mine is so dangerous, why did it take the Labor Department this long to go to court? It's been almost five months, after all, since Mine Safety Chief Kevin Strickland cited the Freedom Mine as the test case. 
A judge's rejection of the case is the biggest risk, says Ed Clare, the agency's former top mine safety lawyer. That could establish a very adverse precedent for using this provision and perhaps somehow otherwise circumscribe the agency's enforcement authority. Claire was at the Mine Safety Agency almost the entire time the injunction option wasn't used. He says other enforcement seemed to work as serious accidents declined. But since 2006, 56 miners died in five disasters, including April's Upper Big Branch explosion. That tragedy has a lot to do with the Labor Department's action now, says mine safety expert Celeste Monforton. The Upper Big Branch mine disaster was the harshest wake-up call imaginable. I'm not sure the moment would have come if not for the 29 lives lost. It's now up to a federal judge in Kentucky to decide what to do about Massey's Freedom Mine. The first hearing in this test case is expected in the next several weeks. Howard Burkus, NPR News. Now a Mac underhand was a coal company man, a businessman from out of state. He owned the mountaintop mine with the giant jack line that dug his coal 24 hours a day. But there'd been some delaying from some old fiddle plan where they tried to mine the cemetery. Now Mac's man had stopped mining, his profits declining. Who might this some fiddler be? Who might this some fiddler be? Mac drove in his truck through all the mine muck until he found the old man where he played. He fiddled at the edge of a dangerous ledge where the tombs of his forefathers laid. Apparently the Obama administration's capitulation uh, is not only in the realm of legislation but also in regulation. Now the EPA uh, actually has broad authority to regulate uh, environmental pollutants, that's its whole point, and the Supreme Court, the conservative Supreme Court, has actually said that is absolutely true, and they do have that authority, and they can go forward. And they were supposed to go forward with some new rules to restrict uh, uh, harmful air pollutants, including smog, mercury, and soot, starting in January. They have just announced that they will delay some of those for six to seven months. They will not do those regulations that they said they were going to do. Now, understand the consequences. Uh, according to uh, some of the, ex the t leading experts in the uh, field, the new smog standards would have helped to prevent 12,000 premature deaths, 58,000 cases of aggravated asthma, and save up to $100 billion in avoided health care costs. The EPA itself says that 5,000 deaths could be prevented each year under the new rules to limit the amount of mercury and other harmful pollutants. Okay, now, I, are those numbers true? I don't know, but these are the top scientists in the field, right? So if you delay the rules by half a year, I guess only 2,500 people die because of that decision, right? And so why do they do it? Again, it is a Democratic president, and uh, right now, overwhelming Democratic Congress, but they don't even need it. They just, this is the executive branch. Um, here is what Frank O'Donnell, president of the advocacy group Clean Air Watch says, quote, it is hard to avoid the impression that the EPA is running scared from the incoming Congress. And this Associated Press article explains all the different pressure that the Republicans have been putting on the EPA, saying, you better not regulate, you better not do your job, you better not uh, try to limit the pollution in the air, because, oh, we will defund you, and we, what else we'll do is we'll come in there and we'll do investigations. As if this is going to stop the investigations? Your pathetic weakness? 
No, it's going to encourage the investigations. So, yet again, the Obama administration preemptively buckling to the Republicans on a matter that is enormously important and completely within their control. They, they don't have the excuse here of, oh, I couldn't get the votes in the Senate, boo-hoo, I can't win in the Senate, as Obama said in his press conference a couple of days ago. No, this you could just do with, here it is. In fact, you had already promised to do it, you were on schedule to do it, now it's been delayed because you're scared of the Republicans. So sad. But we're not done. One last little insult to injury. There is one group that is ecstatic about this delay. It is the American Petroleum Institute. They put out a statement saying they were very pleased with the EPA's request to delay these uh, new uh, regulations. And it said, quote, we also hope the EPA will now reconsider other costly and unworkable proposals. In other words, of course, it's not enough. Thank you very much, Barack Obama, for doing our bidding, even though we just spent a tremendous amount of money to make sure your fellow Democrats are defeated, as the American Petroleum Institute did, among other uh, giant oil companies within that institute. Thank you very much. And plus, it's not enough. We'd like more. Barack Obama is a case study in weakness. Yeah, I mean, if you... If they put one of the, literally, there's these case studies, you know, Harvard Business School, et cetera, they do them, and want to define what weakness is in leadership, this is it. Oh, imagine if you had, I mean, imagine if you had a, a person who was just of normal constitution, let alone a strong progressive. Oh, you don't like my EPA rules. Oh, that's a very interesting. How about you in the presidency next time, and you'll get the right to EPA rules. Otherwise, piss off. Obama wouldn't dare. He's like, oh my God, I'm going to petroleum institute. What would you like me to do? Oh, of course I'll delay them, sir. Of course I will. Oh, you're going to spend more money against me. Fantastic. Oh, I'm sure the American Petroleum Institute will ease up on Obama, though. I'm sure in 2012 they won't spend millions to defeat him. I'm sure of it. Sucker. Loser. I'm not supposed to say these things, right? I'm supposed to be polite towards the president. I, I, I forget because, you know, the American media is all about being very polite to the government. It's official. 2010 was the hottest year on record. We're number one. Yes. Uh, uh, well, it's to be clear, it's actually tied as the warmest year on record. with. We're two, tied for number one. <laughs> with 2005. That's according to NASA and NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Well, your news here is impossible. I've heard over and over again on Fox News that it has been cooling over the last 10 years. And, of course, they're wrong. What? Of course, they're wrong with all of the top 10 hottest years on record occurring since 1990. 95. 
That's based on surface temperatures since record-keeping began in 1880, and both agencies squarely placed the blame on greenhouse gas emissions for heating up the planet. Yet, on the day of the announcement, 49 states, all but one, have snow on the ground. Thereby proving the globe is not warming. (laughs) So, yes, of course, that means that climate change deniers believe snow means global warming is a hoax. So let's just review real quick. Weather is short-term local conditions outside your window. Climate is long-term global trends. There will still be winter, and when it's cold in your backyard, rain will still fall as snow. And even more so, by the way, 2000 to 2009 was the hottest decade on record. Yep, hotter than the 90s, which was hotter than the 80s, which was hotter than the 70s, but shh, don't tell the people at Fox News. It's all a hoax. Audible, an Amazon company, may have 85,000 audiobooks, but they don't have my favorite book of all time, The Solitaire Mystery by Yostine Garter. It's out of print, hard to come by, and the audio version only comes on cassette tapes. So you could go to audiblepodcast.com slash best to get a free audiobook of your choice, and I'm not saying you won't find anything worth reading. I'm just saying you'll have to settle for one of the 85,000 books that doesn't contain the most fun and insightful story I've ever read. That's audiblepodcast.com slash best to be only minorly disappointed by the selection of audiobooks available. Last year on ABC, George Stephanopoulos asked House Minority Leader John Boehner about the Republican plan to deal with the carbon emissions contributing to climate change. Here was his response. George, the idea that carbon dioxide is a carcinogen that is harmful to our environment is almost comical. Every time we exhale, we exhale carbon dioxide. Uh, Every cow in the world, uh, you know, when they do what they do, you've got more carbon dioxide. I'm joined on the phone by staff writers Elizabeth Colbert and Ryan Lissa. Betsy has written extensively about climate change for the magazine, and Ryan recently wrote a piece about President Obama's failure to get an energy bill through the Senate. So, Ryan, Obama has conceded that his bill can't be revived for at least the next two years, but Republicans are moving forward with their own agenda on climate change. What is it exactly that they're going to be taking on? Well, let, let me take a step back and just one thing that's important to realize is the United States is now really one of the only modern democracies that has a major party that basically outright denies or is at least highly skeptical of the consensus on climate change. It's really an amazing development. One of the big stories that I think people don't realize over the last two years is just how the Republican Party internally has turned against this issue. And if you think back, now it looks like maybe the high point on Republican support for cap-and-trade or to do something about climate change is really 2008. In June 2008, There was a cloture vote. That's the the important vote to proceed on a piece of legislation in the Senate. And seven Republicans voted for cap-and-trade. Considering what's happened to the term cap-and-trade since then and how demagogue it's become, it's just amazing to think that we've got seven Republican votes for that. And all seven of those Republicans have either retired, been defeated for re-election, or turned against cap-and-trade. What happened with this issue is it turned from mostly a regional issue, an issue that divided the political parties based on 
uh, where they came from. If they came from a state with a lot of coal uh, or oil interests, they were against it. And if they came from the coasts or states that were really had a lot of renewable energy, they were more likely to be for it. But once President Obama made it a plank of his agenda, it became not just a regional issue, but an extremely partisan issue. And Republicans uh, abandoned it, and the base and the Tea Party turned it into a rallying cry. So that brings you to the, to the point now where Republicans have taken over the House, and you have them in charge of these committees that they didn't want uh, created in the first place, and then you have a series of Republican candidates running for president in 2012, all of whom I will bet will be, if not outright against doing anything about climate change and denying climate science, will be highly, highly skeptical. And that's a, that's a major, major change. It's fascinating, actually, when you think about the Republican Party as represented by Teddy Roosevelt, say, in its long tradition of, of being strong advocates of the need for conservation, that, that seems to be almost gone now. And if, yeah. it, if there are any remnants of it, nobody dares to speak its name. And, of course, as we've discussed before, cap-and-trade was a Republican idea. Betsy, you write in your comment in the forthcoming issue that House Republicans plan to reject this consensus on the need to avoid climate change that goes back to George H.W. Bush. Could you talk a little bit about how that's happened over the years, how we are going in the wrong direction now? Well, it's, you know, one of the mysteries of the, of the organism, sort of how you can have a situation where, you know, almost 20 years after George Bush Sr. signed on to this international agreement with, with a lot of fanfare and a lot of Pride that the U.S. was committing itself to avoiding what's called dangerous climate change, which has never been exactly defined, but, you know, I think everyone would tell you we're very rapidly heading towards it. And everyone has affirmed that, even George uh, Bush Jr., who was quite hostile to any form of actual, you know, environmental regulation. And now we are 20 years on, really, and we have a group of people you know, challenging the science behind that original commitment, which is absolutely unassailable at this point. Uh, and yet you have people, you know, quoting Genesis and telling you that this science can't be true. And you ask yourself, you know, what kind of uh, a technologically advanced country does this happen in? And the only real country that you can point to is our own, I'm afraid. What about um, the, the Republicans who are going to be taking over some of these key committees? James Sensenbrenner of Wisconsin, who's going to become the head of the House Select Committee on Energy Independence and Global Warming, and Daryl Issa, who will be chair of the House Oversight and Government Reform Committee. The thing that I've seen is they're going to go after two things. One is the EPA's authority to regulate greenhouse gases. And two, in some ways even worse, going to go after scientists who get public funding or who are any way involved with that pseudo-scandal over the emails. Betsy, is it, are we going to be seeing that whole debate resuscitated? Um, yeah, gate? absolutely. Um, many people have, you know, described this trying to go after scientists so really selectively investigate scientists who are involved in climate research and whose findings they don't like, which is, you know, just about all of them, as a witch hunt. It really has, you know, a McCarthyite vibe to it. Now, whether at the end of the day, you know, these guys have the guts to, you know, hold a hearing that is going to be called a witch hunt uh, remains to be seen, but I definitely think they're going to be hauling the EPA in front of these committees because this is the one group at this point that, you know, does have the power and in some sense actually has the legal obligation now to regulate greenhouse gases. And what they're going to try to do is, is intimidate them and make it as difficult as possible for them to do it and as politically costly as possible for them to do it. But, Ryan, couldn't this backfire? And are there not Republicans who are, are worried that this, this could be a public charade? 
You know, it's a good question. I gave a presentation recently about the sort of Republicans' journey on this issue over the last two years to a, a group of, uh, of people involved with uh, energy up in New York, and uh, this staffer for one of the he was for one of the moderates in in Maine, I, I believe Snow, but it could have been Collins. But anyway, he came up to me afterwards and he said, "You know, you're wrong. It's not as grim as you think." And you know, he he works for a senator that is very worried about this backlash uh, against the moderates in the party and who will probably have a tough re-election. But he said, look, the Tea Party has reached its peak, and the next stage of the political process in the Republican Party is the backlash against the Tea Party. And there's going to be energy le- legislation in the next Congress. And, you know, he, he laid out the scenario by which these guys like Sensenbrenner and, and Daryl Issa go too far, and they embarrass the establishment, and it creates a vacuum in the center, and that are some Republican moderates like the, the main senators step forward and you could actually get some legislation. Personally, I found that scenario highly unlikely, <laughs> but I thought it was interesting that there is some thinking among the few moderates that are left about how they make a comeback, and it sort of starts with the backlash against the Tea Party. Well, I'm also curious, Ryan, about uh, Senator Lindsey Graham, who played a major role, probably the major role in your piece recently about all of this as a Republican who really kind of saw the light he did exactly what the staffer was laying out. That is, there was this vacuum in the Republican Party in the center, and Lindsey Graham seized it, and not just on climate change, but on a few issues. After a few months of getting educated on the issue by some environmentalists, he started to talk about you know, carbon dioxide as a threat to our future. You know, he, only, he sort of had his polar bear moments. And then when the political heat just got so intense for him and he abandoned the talks, he just started moving really far in the other direction. And by June, I don't think this was in the piece, but by June, Lindsey Graham was basically uh, speaking like a climate skeptic. Betsy? I think that the Obama administration, as you know, Ryan's piece very ably pointed out, and you know, everything we've seen indicates, has failed to come up with a narrative by which this is a winning issue. And one interesting, the only real you know, good news out of this last election was that in California, they rejected very, very handily an attempt to undo the state's global warming law, which is, you know, the most wide-ranging in the nation. And that was a bipartisan campaign to defeat that attempt by the oil companies to roll it back. And it was successfully, I think, positioned in some ways as a way that was California was going to be at the forefront of this new energy economy. And many people, you know, have made the argument and the plea to the Obama administration, this is what the story is. You know, the Chinese are moving ahead. They're going to be the leaders in all of these new energies. We are going to need new sources of carbon-free energy. That's just, you know, a fact, okay? And you can either, you know, drag your heels and let the Chinese do it, or you can be on the vanguard. So that argument does seem to have, you know, worked in California, where I guess you could say, you know, a lot of things work that don't work in the rest of the country. But the Obama administration never made a sort of full-throated effort to make that argument. But a lot of people have said now, okay, well, we have let this debate move so far in the other direction, and those people have had so many victories by, you know, really completely misrepresenting this issue, that it's going to take a very, very long time just to get the conversation, you know, back where it was two years ago, so that you could maybe potentially move forward. And that is just time, you know, that unfortunately the planet does not have, because every year that goes by and we build more infrastructure that's very carbon intensive, it makes it that much more difficult to solve this problem. 
Ryan, so I want you to address that because this, yeah. this is at the heart of your piece, it seems to me. And you, you talked about how the White House had made these big tactical mistakes and that they just disastrously did nothing to galvanize public opinion on the issue. What is Obama going to do about climate change for the next two years, especially knowing that the Republicans in Congress are going to be on the aggressive attack? Well, there's a couple of things he can do just through regulation, and he's, he's, he's started down this track already, and that is better fuel efficiency standards, and that uh, will reduce some CO2, and then the EPA regulations, but that's a very complicated, thorny issue and might not get the reductions you need anyway. And then three, there may be some bipartisan support, definitely not for a cap on carbon. That's dead for, for a while. But for you know a renewable energy standard, which would you know require utilities to produce a certain percentage of their electricity from sources that don't yeah. use uh, greenhouse gases, but the cap on carbon, which I don't know most experts really think is what you need, is they'll tell you we've never solved a pollution problem without actually capping the amount of that pollution that can go into the atmosphere. That seems to me pretty critical. The other thing, just if you look at where the collapse was for Democrats in this last election, it overlays pretty well with the uh, the map of the country that gets its energy from sources that would be the most affected by doing something about climate change. And that is, you know, the Midwest, the heart of the country, was really where the, the Democrats did poorly. And um, if you're David Axelrod or Obama's other advisors, I doubt you're advising the president to come out really strongly in favor of another bold uh, plan to do something about global warming. Yeah, but that sounds pathetic. And some of the ideas that you've just outlined just feel like sort of fiddling around the edges. And you end your piece with a quote from an environmental lobbyist who has a very alarming statement saying that 50 years from now, when we look back at the Obama administration, nobody's going to think anything about health care reform and that Obama knows knows this. And he was telling you everyone's going to be thinking about whether Barack Obama was the James Buchanan of climate change. He has to turn the conversation radically around, much the way Al Gore turned the conversation around across the world. Why can't Obama and the administration advance the conversation, this great communicator, rather than just doing a little bit here and a little bit there? Why can't he use the presidency? I mean... There's a chicken and egg question here. On the one hand, you want the politicians to lead on this issue and change public opinion. But on the other hand, these politicians, even the great Barack Obama, don't really do anything that's not in their self-interest and don't do things that are, are going to harm their reelection. You know, so if I were an activist on this issue, you know, I would say that what you need to target is Republicans. You've got to turn the Republican Party around on this issue or you're never going to get any consensus. And frankly... Barack Obama is not the guy who's going to turn the Republican Party around on this issue. So, Betsy, what, what can be done? Well, many people who have, you know, looked at this issue and, 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 and other issues, I mean, where you, where you have just this terrible polarization along partisan lines, have, you know, come to the same conclusion. People only listen to messengers that they trust. Yeah. And what you need is someone... Lindsey Graham was going to play that role, but, you know, failed at it. And John McCain at one point played that role and now has just completely backtracked. So, you know, nothing could really be more depressing than John McCain's performance on this whole issue over the last several years since he was really out front in the early part of the decade pushing for cap-and-trade legislation. Is You need to have someone who has real credibility in that 
Tea Party ish community to say, okay, look, I have looked at it, you know, and I really feel like this is the country's number one, you know, pressing need and we need to do X, Y, and Z. And until that happens, just having Barack Obama or Al Gore, you know, tell these people, well, they, they find that, you know, laughable. They find that extremely easy to dismiss. And that's, you know, exactly why we are in the situation uh, that we're in right now. And when you have a very large you know, part of the population that's either indifferent or really immune to, you know, facts, really totally fact-free. We are now having a conversation that has absolutely nothing to do uh, with facts. It's extremely difficult, you know, to reach those people. It's not the right time to be sober. Now the idiots have taken over. Last night, I, I uh, unfortunately, I don't have the printout of it here with me right now, but last night on our, uh, on our RTTV show, I read a letter from Thomas Jefferson to his cousin James Madison, not the one who became president, but he had a cousin by the same name. And in that, in that letter, Jefferson said that uh, he referred to the commons. And actually what he was talking about, what he was calling for, he was talking about how he was, he was in France and, and uh, he, he went for a walk in the woods and he met this woman who was very poor and he gave her you know, what to him was just a few pennies, but what to her was like a week's salary. And, and she started sobbing. And he, and he just goes into this long rumination about poverty. And he says, the disparity of income is so great here in Europe, and it's so wrong. And the solution that he proposed was to, to have no tax at all on people of low income and to have taxes that went up geometrically and, and, and well, logarithmically, that, that went up, you know, every, for every one-fold increase in income, you'd have a ten-fold increase in taxes above a certain point. On, on people of great wealth to, to try and level this out. I mean, he just explicitly came out and called for this. And then he, he, he sums it up by saying that anybody who is working, that, that any country where there's empty land and poor people, should not, that, you know, that, that combination should not exist. Where there's unused capacity and poor people, that should not exist. And he talked about how as a country industrializes, if land is taken away from people to make factories and things, that it is the obligation of government to make sure that those people have a job to replace the job that they've lost. And in that, he talks about the commons, of and the, 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 the right, the right to have a job, that that's part of the commons. This right to have a job. Thomas Jefferson. I mean, the, the, these guys understood this stuff. They had it figured out. What are we missing here? Oil, the use of oil 
first of all, you've got people, you know, massive oil billionaires. I mean, all over the place, these people are becoming so incredibly mind-bogglingly rich on oil. And these corporations, ExxonMobil, the most profitable corporation in the history of the planet. Today is the anniversary, or yesterday was the anniversary. Today we're talking about the anniversary of the, the oil disaster and the murder of fourteen or of eleven people down in uh, down in, in off the coast of Louisiana by executives at British Petroleum and and you know, arguably some of the other companies who decided that they would cut corners, Halliburton among them, who decided that they would cut corners in order to increase profits. But the larger issue is that when oil is drilled, it spills into the commons and it costs them virtually nothing. When, uh, unless they get caught, in which case the cost is still, it's just a cost of doing business. And by the way, it's entirely tax deductible. And secondly, when oil is used, it pollutes our commons. The biggest pollution right now, or the most dangerous pollution, is not the stuff that Alex and I were debating, which is, which is uh, you know, the high fraction hydrocarbons that that produce cancers and things, and or the soot that produces uh, asthma. You know, the biggest problem, arguably, is carbon dioxide pollution coming from these carbon sources, which is warming the planet. We just had the you know twelve of the twelve warmest months in a, in, a, in a row in the history of the world. We had six of the six. Uh, you know, it's it, cities all around the world are just you know they're cooking. This is an ongoing disaster, and what are we doing about it? Nothing. I mean, Congress is dithering. Why? Because there's oil billionaires out there funding phony astroturf grassroots groups groups like like the Tea Parties. And, and drawing into them decent, hardworking Americans who don't have any idea that the mantra they're chanting, get government on my back, is the exact opposite of what they actually want. You ask these people, do you think that, it should, that oil companies should have an unlimited right to pollute and there should be no government regulation of them? And the vast majority of them will say, what, are you crazy? Yet that, you know, when they're out there chanting that mantra, get government off our backs, that's the mantra of the oil billionaires who are funding these guys. They say, I'm taxed enough already. People, you know, people, half of half people in America pay no federal income tax at all. And, and among the boomers in particular and the aging folks who are on Social Security who show up for these Tea Party events, most of them are on Social Security and Medicare. And they're, and they're complaining about the government in their lives. But this huge subsidy of the oil companies, by letting them pour poison into our commons, the commons being this very thin layer of atmosphere around us, it's only six miles from the surface of the earth to the end of our atmosphere, to the end of the troposphere. It's six miles. You can bicycle it in ten minutes. You can walk it in an hour and a half. Well, depending on how fast you bicycle. You can drive it in six minutes at 60 miles an hour. I guess it would take you probably 20 minutes to bicycle. But the point is, it's like, it's this, it's very, this, this very thin layer of atmosphere around us. And we're now well over 350 parts per million of carbon dioxide in. And as a consequence, moisture in the air is up 10% from what it was just 30 years ago. And the consequence of that is A, we're trapping more heat. And B, we're having more wild and violent weather events. And all of this together is, is because we're, we're dependent upon oil. If
other things that I forgot to do. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal, it will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. And I wonder if I'd see another highway. Um, so let me first talk about the dilemma. Oil is not a problem because a problem has solutions. Peak oil is a dilemma. And the difference between a problem and a dilemma is a very important one psychologically. Because for a variety of reasons, people like to solve problems, but people hate dilemmas because whichever way you go to try to mitigate a dilemma, you create other problems. And so for a lot of my readers, a lot of my contributors, they stopped knowing what to wish for. If they wished for the end of oil, they got a planet. But if they hoped that we would never run out of oil, they got dramatic climate change. So it was always between a rock and a hard place. So I want to talk to you about the person who first faced this dilemma. Um, this is a picture of Cassandra, and she's a, um, a Greek character. Uh, she was given the gift to be able to predict the future, but unfortunately, she really ticked off Apollo. And he couldn't take away her po powers, but what he did is say to her, you will never be believed when you tell people what's coming. So I want to introduce you the, to the first Cassandra um, that I was aware of in the United States. And this was uh, President Jimmy Carter 33 years ago. He basically, um, and I want to tell you his story very briefly, but if you're interested, it, it's worth the time to go and to Google uh, the en energy speech for Jimmy Carter and the speech is there and it's in writing as well as him speaking it but I'm going to give you a very brief version of what he said he said let me start with a history lesson on energy he said a long time ago what when we needed energy we burned wood and in fact we burned so much wood that 90% of our energy needs were met with wood after that we discovered coal. And coal was such a much more intense form of energy for us that it enabled us to begin the Industrial Revolution and put a lot of people to work, a lot of children to work. And after that, we discovered this cool thing called natural gas and oil. And the one thing that we needed to understand about oil is that, according to um, Jimmy Carter, it was the densest energy source on the face of the planet. It was so dense that if you fill your tank with the stuff, you can 
move two tons of metal 350 to 400 miles. I mean, that's incredible amount of energy in a very little space. And I think it's hard for us to grasp how powerful and how concentrated oil actually is. So he basically said it gave us things like automobiles and airplanes. And the important thing he said is we have never known anything else. And this was 33 years ago, so it's even more true now that we just assume that having access to natural gas and oil is is natural. And he said the problem is that it's a finite substance and we are are burning through 60 million barrels of oil every single day across the planet. He said in 1950, we burned twice as much oil as we did in 1940. And in 1960, we burned twice as much as we did in 1950. And he said in each of those decades, we burned more oil than the entire history of the planet. So he said, what has happened is that the United States, the United States is the most wasteful nation on earth. And he said, we burn, we we drive these gas-cuzzling cars. He said, and it's the moral equivalent of war. So important is this energy issue that we have to begin a campaign as a nation to rally around like we would a war to really tackle this issue seriously. He said we have to go on a very strict conservation program. We have to start to um, turn our energy, turn our heat down. We have to start insulating our homes because he said more oil is wasted going out our uh, windows and walls than we import every year. So he said, we have to beef up our public transportation and get away from private automobiles. We have to turn towards alternative energies like solar and wind technology. And I'll show you how. So he said, first, turn your heat down, wear a sweater, you know, get your wife to wear a sweater, put a solar panel like I'm doing right here on the White House. And If you don't, here's the problem. And it was like the lost in space robot. He said, you know, warning, warning, there will be tremendous environmental damage if you don't do that. Here's what, here are some of the things he said are going to happen. He said, number one, we're going to be going into areas to try to get the last drops of oil in places that we don't want to go because it's going to create a huge mess for us. He said, we're going to go into areas to find coal and dig up and cut up the landscape in in horrific ways. He said, we're going to start building nuclear power plants quickly. Think about that. Many of us don't want nuclear power plants built slowly. We certainly don't want them built at the speed of life, you know, or death as the case may be. So he said... This is what we need to tackle. So then the election came, and we had a choice. Were we going to go with Debbie Downer and the first lady casual who was wearing sweaters, or were we going to go with a cowboy who basically would have wives and a wife in a lovely evening gown, you know, many, many evening gowns, and we could leave our heat up as high as we wanted. We could drive the big cars. It wasn't important. It didn't matter. And we would all make lots of money and 
hooray, we would have a major party uh, and take those stupid solar panels off the White House. So that's what we did. Uh, this is Max, broadcasting live from the People's Republic of Berkeley, California. And uh, I just wanted to thank you for making economics the focus of your five-year anniversary podcast. Congratulations, by the way. Because um, as we know, economics uh, is really the basis of uh, politics. And uh, our economic insanity really, really does deserve to be highlighted. Um, and... You know, traditions of shows like uh, yours and uh, any, any journals that have been tracing the inconsistencies in economic policy from the Gilded Age uh, and long before and onwards. But anyone that's been paying attention to the insanity of our economic policies uh, sh- should write it down. Should write it down so future generations can not just read it, but now hear about it and watch it. So thanks, Jay. Uh, keep up the good work. And I'll uh, contribute to your economic realities when I can deal with mine. Thank you. Bye. Hey, Jay, this is Todd. Safely out of the veil of the red curtain, meaning Arizona, and in the wonderful blue state of California. So I heard um, in your last show that uh, no one had called in. And um, I have a topic that I would like to hear more discussion about. It's like, where is our candidate for 2012? Uh, you know, I worked for Obama for six months, nights and weekends. That's while maintaining a full-time job and commuting 52 miles in L.A. traffic. And there's no way in hell I'm going to be working for, you know, getting him reelected. Or even voting for him, um, you know, but I see no movement on the progressive side to put a candidate out there, um, start to get organized, which is really disheartening. Uh, so I would like to hear more discussion about that. All right, take care. Um, hi, Jay. I'm, uh, my name's John. I'm calling from Japan. And I've been listening to your show for quite a while now. I like it a lot. But I have one problem with with it, and it's the same problem that I have with most left alternative media in the U.S. In particular, you say you fearlessly touch all the hot-button issues. Well, excuse me if I'm wrong, but I have never heard a show about the Israeli-Palestinian which is the linchpin of most of our problems in the, in the uh, Middle East, in my opinion. Uh, the rest of the world's governments, left, right, and center, recognize that Israel is carrying out a brutal occupation of Palestinian land, but in America, the very country bankrolling and arming this occupation, pretty much silence on the left-wing shows, uh, save maybe the Young Turks and democracy now. It's conspicuous by its absence and uh, a real shame. Um, it's a subject that sorely needs to be discussed, and I hope you take it on sometime. Thanks, and uh, keep up the good work. 
Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action to be played on the show yourself, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. And it's great to have voicemails back on the show and such good ones that I get to respond to today, so that's what I'm going to do. First of all, to respond to Todd's comment about us uh, you know, needing to uh, put up a primary candidate against Obama, hear my thoughts on that. First of all, uh, on principle... I am not opposed to the idea. Uh, when you bring reality into uh, into the issue, it gets a lot murkier. And here are a couple of things that I hadn't really thought of myself until I heard them expressed by other people and heard some other opinions expressed that made me realize how much trouble that would be. So um, the first the first thing on that is that uh, Democrats are really really split on how well they think Obama's doing. And, you know, if you listen to shows like this and, uh, and, and you know, the source shows for this episode, uh, you know, or for, for this uh, program, then you will hear a lot of people saying a lot of things, speaking on principle, speaking about policies, and not caring about the people or the politicians involved. That's the foundation of, of what I try to do in this show is to speak from, uh, you know, a point of principle and not be, you know, blindly supportive of anybody. Um, unfortunately, from my perspective, it's unfortunate that there are a lot of Democrats who uh, who are very, very supportive of Obama and think that he can do practically no wrong. Um, so, so just keep in mind that the Democratic Party is split that way, even though you know it's rarely polled to show that fact. Uh, the other thing is uh, think back to the primary election that uh, Obama won uh, when it, and think of when it came down to Obama versus Hillary and and remember the comments that were being made by uh, by female supporters of Hillary Clinton. Um, I've, I thought that they were absurd at the time. I still think that they were absurd. Uh, but there were definitely comments made saying that if you're not supportive of Hillary, then it's sexism. And I think that's ridiculous, but people really did think that. And uh, and my my impression is that if we were to put up a primary candidate against uh, you know against a sitting president instead of just uh, you know having it be uh, you know an automatic renomination as it uh, almost always is uh, for the party in power, and and we were to do that again again bringing reality into the situation. If we were to do that against the first. African-American president in this country's history, uh, if you think that a gigantic portion of the country wouldn't call that racism, uh, I think you're mistaken. And in the same way that I felt about the women talking about sexism uh, with Clinton, uh, I would I would stand with you and say that to say that it's racist to primary Obama is ridiculous. Uh, anyone who's in favor of primary Obama, I assure you, is doing it for... Um, uh, you know, principled reasons based on policy. Uh, it, well, and then there's the two percent of uh, people in the Democratic Party who are still racist. You know, they, there must be some out there. We just never hear from them. So that's, you know, m my perspective is, as I said, on principle, I'm not opposed to the idea. Uh, when you bring reality into it, it gets a lot murkier. And um, and and then I th I think to say a, a primary challenge is is even possible is practically a fantasy. I just don't think it's going to happen. And um, and so then to say that you can't be supportive of Obama when he's the candidate is like to say, 
you know, Harry Reid, Sharon Engel, whatever. I hate Harry Reid so much that, you know, I'm just not going to vote. And if Sharon Engel gets in, then who cares? You know, like it, we, we can't let it get to that point where where we say, well, we're so disillusioned with Obama, even though he's so much better than a Republican would be. Um, we're disillusioned. So screw it. If a Republican gets elected, uh, you know, I don't care if I don't vote. No skin off my back. So that that's my perspective on that. And then uh, to John in Japan. Well, first of all, thanks for calling in all the way from Japan. I don't know if you had to pay for that call or what, but um, you are very much excused for being wrong in your uh, statement that I have never done a show about uh, the Israel-Palestine issue. Um, back on uh, June 17th of 2010, episode number 375 was about Israel-Palestine. And so that that goes to show two things. First, it goes to show that, yes, you know, I, I really did do an episode about uh, the Israel issue. And second, yes, it doesn't get talked about nearly enough. Um, and and th- this is what I say to anybody who ever comments to me, hey, why don't you do a show about X? And I say, well, look, the, the show, the sources that I use for my program aren't talking about X. I, I would love to do a show about how, you know, Monsanto is, uh, you know, mutating all of our food and patenting, you know, all of the genes and making a fortune off of making our food supply worse. You know, I, I would love to do a show about that, but it doesn't get talked about enough in even the most liberal media, unless it's like a pet issue for people. So as John mentioned, it's true. The Young Turks and Democracy Now! do talk about Israel, but I can't just make a show with 10 clips from the Young Turks talking about Israel. So uh, it is on my list of, uh, of topics to pull clips from uh, to eventually make a show, but they are so few and far between that that's just the reality of where I stand when it comes to making my shows. Um, so yeah, it, it doesn't get talked about enough, but if you do want to hear the best of the left take on the, um, the big Israel flotilla, um, flotilla of humanitarists is, is the, uh, is the name of the episode. Uh, you can go back to that, uh, episode number 375 back from June last year. And, um, you know, it's better than nothing. So that's it for today. Now I just want to thank a couple of members. Michael K signed up for a leftist membership back on August 11th. Signed up uh, for a monthly membership and has stuck with the show since then. So thank you very much, Michael. And Cher Eves, who signed up uh, for a yearly leftist membership on October 7th. And uh, and Cher, along with her donation, sent in a note asking that, first of all, I use her full name. And second of all, to pass along her message via this show, uh, that uh, to tell Glenn Beck, Bill O'Reilly, Rush Limbaugh, and Mitch McConnell that they do not speak for her and that she is not afraid that black people or brown people or space aliens are coming to take her money or guns or children or land. Uh, so there you go. Uh, the, the message has been conveyed. Uh, sadly, I, I, um, I don't think that Mitch McConnell listens to the show anymore. I got an email from him a while ago saying uh, that as, as big of a fan as he, as he was, he was really upset by the fact that I was continuing to advertise for Amazon.com. He was really opposed to that uh, on principle. And because of that, he had to, uh, you know, cancel his uh, podcast subscription to the show. So um, if you want... Uh, Mitch to get that message. You may have to send it to him directly. Uh, The other three, Beck O'Reilly and Limbaugh, I I believe are still listening. 
So thanks to those members and all of the members and donors who make this show possible. I couldn't do it without you guys. If you're interested in memberships, please check out the membership tab or uh, one-time donations are uh, also greatly appreciated. All that can be done through the website at bestoftheleft.com. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it. You can stay connected to the show and spread the word online by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all of those details are always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you 10 times a month, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Now black and white Cause you took up on a picture that wasn't right